TED Audio Collective. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's up, Stella Pierce? How you doing? Good. I just talked to your brother and we talked about Lazy Lake. Do you know what Lazy Lake is? Yeah. Tell me what Lazy Lake is. Well, it's a place on the map and uh, you can land there. What's a day like in Lazy Lake? Well, it's not much of a day. It's more of a... <laughs> Loot houses and then kill people. Whoa. <laughs> so, no, this adorable child is not looting and killing. She's just hanging out in a place in a video game. I'm Salim Rashamwala, and from TED, this is Far Flung. Shout out to Marriott Hotels for sponsoring this episode. And today, we are going to leave the physical world behind for the virtual. Because there's something really obvious that we haven't talked about much. And that's that 2020 is a weird time to make a travel show. Travel is really tricky right now. And a lot of people are spending a lot more time in virtual places. Hey, how did they do? <laughs> that was really... So I checked in with my friend Pierce to ask about his kid's virtual life. And he told me the whole family had been spending a lot more time in Lazy Lake, the main city in the video game Fortnite, which is this very social survival game where 100 players battle till only one stands. Hunger Games style. Cool. Is there anything else you'd want people to know about Fortnite? Uh, Fortnite. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's amazing to me as a parent now having to basically homeschool our kids and figure out how to bring some sense of normalcy and stability. And, you know, prior to COVID, the, the line that you'd hear is like limit screens and kids have screens all the time. It's if it's not the iPad, it's the phone or the yeah. television. And we've actually found refuge in Fortnite being able, for example, to uh, grant them some level of regular communication with their friends because they're all Fortnite players. It's just kids hanging out, just like they would in a physical place. They meet up, see new things, create memories. And that can really make some games feel like their own places. But because they're virtual, they're obviously places you can travel to separate from your body and your physical location. And that can be freeing. And long before the pandemic ever hit, some people knew all this very well. So today we have three stories from people who turned to virtual worlds when their physical worlds fell short. Let's go. Thanks, Stella. You're welcome. World one, escape from Minak. I am Derek Arian. I have long, flowing, luscious black hair. I have the perfect Van Dyke beard. I am muscle bound, something I was never in my life prior to that. Uh, I have um, a very 
nice shirt on. What's what's a nice shirt? What does that mean? <laughs> it was really it was just a long sleeve shirt. It was, oh yeah, it's very it's it's pretty nondescript, I guess. Now that I think about okay, it. Okay, yeah. In the physical world, this is Wes Loker. Wes Loker is a writer. His latest book is called Braving Britannia: Tales of Melancholy, Malice, and Peril in Ultima Online. It's a real piece of folklore about a fictional virtual world. And at the time, he was 14, living in the U.S. in the small town of Worcester, Ohio. You know, it's the Midwest, so it's like all the food is beige. Uh, There's (laughs) a lot of corn. There's a lot of farms. And I grew up um, in a very rural area, like really far removed from town. So, you know, there was just that feeling of kind of being isolated and being alone. In a lot of ways, Wes was feeling stuck. Um, Like, I was really shy for a long time. Like, I, I was always like the smallest guy in school, like, Mm. you know, thin and everybody else was like playing sports and I wasn't into that. And so I was, you know, I was just physically smaller than a lot of people. So, you know, as happens, you, you know, you tend to get bullied a lot. So you kind of go inside yourself. He was really into fantasy, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, books that let him escape to other worlds in his mind. And then somebody at, at my school told me, oh, there's this game that you can play with thousands of other people. It was 1998. The game was Ultima Online. At the time, most games were single-player games, like Zelda, or games you played in a room with friends, like Super Mario Kart. But this was one of the first games that existed where you could spend time in a virtual place with people from all over. It just blew my mind. It was, oh my gosh, I can connect with people from all over the world now uh, and develop relationships that you know can last years and years and years. And so I was like, oh, you know, I gotta, I gotta see what all this is about. So I, I bought the game and. And logged on. And, and over the next five years, Wes would come home after school and play this game for hours. Him in front of the PC in his bedroom, a pixelated avatar running around in what was kind of a generic medieval European world. Kind of sword and sorcery, Dungeons and Dragons type of, of setting. Um, but through that, you know, through going on adventures with complete strangers, you know, you you develop these relationships. You can buy a house. You know, you can essentially set up a whole second life within this game. In those hours of playing, this is where Wes would get to know the world beyond Worcester. And in some ways, where Wes would grow up. And one of those growing up lessons came in the first 30 minutes he played the game. Okay, back to Derek Arian. I have a nice, nicely tailored shirt. I have nicely tailored pants. And uh, that's pretty much it. And Derek is totally lost. He's a mage, which is kind of like a wizard character but he has no idea what he's supposed to do. This is an open world game, which means there's no way to win or lose. And you just kind of have to figure out how to live as you go. So I do uh, what anybody else would do and figure out how do I get stronger? How do I accomplish something in this game? So he starts running around and approaches another player. Text appears above his head. To get stronger, the mage Derek Arian, he'll need to buy more ingredients to cast spells things like ashes and roots and berries. And unfortunately, I realized that I have made just a terrible mistake because the city that I've spawned in of Minoc is the only city in Britannia that does not have a mage shop that sells these. So I'm in a, I'm in a pickle. And uh, a player, you know, very kindly informs me that the next city over, which is called Vesper, um, they are actually a city of mages and they'll have what I need there. So you decide to go to Vesper. If I'm going to become worth the salt in this digital world, I have to go to Vesper. 
Derek Arian has to go to the big city. He's excited. But there's also another feeling. You know, having grown up in kind of a small town, there is that nervousness to, oh, there's more out there. So, you know, there, there absolutely was that hesitation to, to go to another town. But Derek didn't have a choice. And 22 years later, he still remembers exactly what happened next. So I start running down a path through the wilderness. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's rather uneventful. There's, you know, there's birds flying by. There's, there's wildlife. There's rabbits. It's a living, breathing world. So as I'm leaving, I, I realize that I've left the safety of the town's royal guards. And, of course, my hackles rise a bit at this, this information. You know, I, I realize now that monsters might be afoot, ghost schools, goblins. Who knows? It's a fantasy world. Yeah. So as I'm running down this path, suddenly it turns into nighttime. And uh, it's, it suddenly becomes a little bit more spooky. I, I can't see very far in front of me. I don't really know where I'm going, so there's the, the fear that I could get lost. Uh, I hear owls hooting. You know, there, there seems to be some sort of fluttering happening nearby. And then the, the sound of me running, you know, the thup, 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 which is very rhythmic and slightly relaxing. Um, and then suddenly I hear other footsteps. It's not just me anymore running. There, there's another quicker sounding footsteps coming my direction. I'm like, okay, I don't know what's going on. Let's roll with it. And all of a sudden, this guy runs up. Uh, he's he's on a horse, uh, a black steed, and uh, he, you know, he looks like he's up to no good. But um, yeah, at this point, I'm I'm new to the land, so it's like, who am I to judge anybody? So he kind of pulls his horse around in front of me and stops. Uh, he looks at me. I look back at him. I'm like, I need to introduce myself. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to Vesper. And rather than you know say, great, have fun. He says these words that I don't quite understand, and um, suddenly uh, a bolt of lightning flies out of his hands and, and into me, and the world goes black. And the words, you are dead, appear on the screen. How do you feel when you receive the words, you are dead? I'm a little hurt because I was I, I greeted this fellow with so much enthusiasm yeah. that I, I wanted him to be happy that I was going to Vesper. It's a very uh, I, like I, country boy in the city sure. sounding moment. Sure. Every, you know, where I come from, where I grew up, everybody says hi to everybody else. You wave, you're friendly, you know, and this, this fellow was antisocial. It's this moment of disillusion that everyone experiences eventually. So I, I learned, you know, that you can't trust everybody that you meet. You know, not everybody has necessarily honorable intentions. But over the years, he kept exploring, and he also learned lessons that he could only learn in a virtual world. When I was playing with these people, you know, I wasn't having those same confrontations that I was finding at school or, or, you know, out on the playground. I was finding people that were, you know, judging me based on my intellect and being able to carry a conversation and talking about meaningful things and sharing fun experiences together. It wasn't something where people were just looking at me and and thinking I wasn't cool or, or worth their time for some reason. So Looking back, he were, says that having the space where he could be Derek Arian helped him become more open, more creative, more confident. It didn't matter how strong he was or wasn't in the physical world. So if people were willing to kind of give me that benefit of the doubt, I realized I needed to give other people that benefit of the, that same benefit of the doubt. Um, so I, I don't feel like I, like I didn't judge people. Because, you know, I was looking at this avatar, I was looking at them presenting themselves the way they wanted to. And I, and I feel like that's something that's kind of stuck with me is that, you know, I, I really try not to judge people when I meet them because I don't know what someone's background is. And I, and I don't know, 
you know, who they are or how they're feeling or if they, you know, if they are inside, how they look on the outside. He's looking past the avatars people have in the physical world because they're not avatars we choose. Who knows what's behind any of our faces? Okay, now a quick break before we head to the dangers of the open ocean. Now it's time for an ad I created with our sponsor, Marriott Hotels. We're spotlighting someone who followed his curiosity and arrived at an innovative idea. And he just so happens to work at Marriott Hotels. Matthew Sanchez is a chef and Marriott Hotels first official beekeeper. Being a beekeeper at this point has revealed a lot to me about what we can do to make this world a better place and which direction we can move towards. And it's been really great. He and his bees work at the Sawgrass Marriott Golf Resort and Spa in the coastal town of Ponte Vedra, Florida. When Matthew and his colleagues were eager to bring the bees to the property, they needed to find a spot where they'd be happy. Matthew found an unused piece of land on the resort, but it wasn't exactly bee friendly. So he and his colleagues decided to make a micro farm. That's a community of plants that includes both food crops and native plants. There were a lot of these invasive quick growing trees everywhere. And so the first thing that we had to grow (laughs) is the soil. We've actually taken all the food scraps from all the restaurants. So this composting program, everything from the coffee grounds and things like that is is going back into the earth. The micro farm became a passion project for Matthew and some of his colleagues. I built the gate out of sticks. I fashioned a, a lot of what we have up there from pallet wood that we get shipments from here at the Marriott. It's all been done by myself and others here that have pitched in with the work. The bees are very happy in their sweet resort digs. Now, all the bees are producing for us approximately 55 gallons of honey a year on property. So everything is hyper-local. It goes right back into craft cocktails, and uh, even our spa has uh, premium services that they offer with honey. And uh, we have a honey harvest, and some people really love that part. Matthew and his bees do a lot more than make honey. They also help with pollination for miles around, and they're a gauge for what's happening in the local environment. Our chefs now are are demanding more and more that their food come from farms that actually have honeybees because they know the food will have less pesticides, less chemicals, and be a lot cleaner because the bees are proof uh, of that. You know, they just don't do well when those things are there. I was curious, how people reacted when you started beekeeping there? Were people surprised? You know, often people are afraid of bees. Well, it's been generally just a positive reception. We have high schools and children that come up to learn about how we keep things sustainable. Matthew and his bees are answering questions for guests and local kids alike. And for Matthew, the bees spread wonder every day. The greatest moment for me has always been when the bees leave the hive in a very organized way with a lot of intent to go to the plants. I mean, there's an animal that wherever it goes, it leaves behind life. Travel expands our horizons and opens our minds to new perspectives. With hundreds of hotels that span the globe, Marriott Hotels is your partner in exploring what the world has to offer you 
and what you have to offer the world. Learn more at MarriottHotels.com. That's M-A-R-R-I-O-T-T Hotels.com. And let your mind travel. A member of Marriott Bonvoy. One of the favorite places that I like to start on Sea of Thieves is Golden Sands Outpost. It's this collection of islands that are linked together with wooden bridges. There are palm trees, and as soon as you look out past the dock and past the islands, you see these beautiful, endless waves. The skies are always clear above Golden Sands Outpost, and it's peaceful. You can hear the wind and the cry of birds. This is Cass Marshall, a writer for the video game website Polygon, and she is standing on an island in Sea of Thieves, a very vivid game environment. The ocean swells and ripples, the ship creaks when you hoist its sails, and it's really, really goofy. It's an environment that kind of feels like you're in Pirates of the Caribbean, but if it was made by Stella and her friends. And like Ultima Online, it's an open world. You just drop in and start to interact. As a crew playing alongside friends, you can go find gold, attack other pirates, or just sit on deck playing the hurdy-gurdy. I actually just looked up what a hurdy-gurdy is. It's like a weird fat fiddle thing you can play in the game. Anyway, the ultimate goal is to make yourself look amazing. Pirates only want to get gold so that they can trade that gold for cosmetic upgrades, like a beautiful new dress or a cool set of sails for their ship. When you do get gold, you do not want the attention of another ship because you don't want another ship to try and take your gold. But Cass plays a little different. Cass recently discovered an in-game trumpet that allows you to project your voice across the ocean and into other ships in the game. And something I picked up was just shouting the word, Hello? Sometimes I'll be like, Why are you following us? Or... Please leave us alone. Yeah, the character that Cass plays in Sea of Thieves is kind of annoying. There's this other thing Cass likes to do, especially when she plays with her friends, Matt and Jake. Here's Matt. So in Sea of Thieves, um, there's there's a method for dealing with uh, what would happen if a crew member is left behind, right? So if you're uh, ashore and your ship leaves without you, Um, the game just doesn't leave you marooned forever. In real life, if your friends forget you at a party, you might just be stuck at a stranger's house. In Sea of Thieves, if you get left on shore, it's not like that. A glowing mermaid will pop up in the sea nearby. You can swim out to it. You interact with the mermaid. You're teleported back to your ship, which is is a, a, a nice way of dealing with it. However, because of the existence of this game mechanic, um... Cass does not feel it is especially necessary to do uh, a head check to make sure everyone's on the ship before she leaves port <laughs> consistently. Um, she she has herself coined the phrase that she tries to get to catch on of catch a merm. Catch a merm, yeah. <laughs> and we keep telling her, stop trying to make catch a merm happen. It's not going to happen. How does Cass um, use catch a merm? In the phrase of if uh, Cass, you've, you've left me ashore, you're sailing away. And she'll laugh and say, catch a merm. (laughs) There's little regard for traditional concepts of winning. No, zero, none. Yeah. 
Her victory is her victory. (laughs) And it's defined by the boundaries that she places. (laughs) What this might sound like is trolling. Would you ever use the word trolling for what you're doing? Trolling is a way to put it. For us, the jokes are very much made with love. What the three of them are doing is actually the opposite of trolling. Matt and Jake and Cass, they're all very close. And Matt says when they mess around in virtual worlds, they sign on with an unspoken agreement. If there was somebody in our social circle who was getting really angry about our general buffoonery and hijinks, we would consider that in and of itself a problem to solve because everyone should be laughing. No one should be being laughed at unless they're laughing too, right? Otherwise it's mean-spirited. They could just go, hey, could you stop? And that's all it takes. And that safety net allows us to be larger than life in our personalities around each other. The games are a playground, and this arrangement, it lets them be the most playful versions of themselves. It's all just very silly. Uh, So I love this whole obsession with silliness, and I want to get, leap into a little of like, why you think that you do this? (laughs) Why you think you enjoy this so much? Tell me, what was it like for you growing up? Yeah, absolutely. I was the youngest of four and the only girl. Um, And growing up, my oldest brother was sick with leukemia, Mm. which was very serious. And at the time, I was too young to really understand it. But it did mean a lot of stays at SickKids in Toronto. And while SickKids was obviously equipped to deal with children and their siblings. It was also a hospital. And so I was told a lot, you know, just settle down, simmer down, you know, oh, people are going to overhear you. Um, I was occasionally a loud child, especially because uh, I was on the spectrum and I wasn't diagnosed until I was an adult. So there were definitely times where I would yell, shout, jump around, just be enthusiastic in a way a child was. And there weren't a lot of big incidents. It was just kind of an uh, ongoing, repetitive thing until the point where it was just something I had internalized. And I took a lot of pride out of being quite quiet and keeping to myself. What was high school like for you? <sighs> Going to high school was a little rough for me. Um, I was, you know, awkward. I was bullied, um, which didn't help matters. And so in high school, I, I kind of again, became quiet. I I didn't reach out to other people as much. And that was something I had to learn sort of how to undo. And video games really helped with that. Cass started playing a game called World of Warcraft. Like Wes, that time spent socializing in a world where she wasn't held back by a body. She says it helped her become more confident and social. And then she met Matt when she was 18 on an internet forum. And we started talking uh, through things like AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. As we grew closer, it became natural for us to sort of play games together. He introduced her to Jake a few years later, and all three of them started playing together. And something that we also shared that I have with both Matt and Jake is they're older brothers and I'm a little sister. And we kind of fell into that dynamic around each other where they kind of dunked on me or teased me uh, in gentle ways, but ways that sort of set up that dynamic of a little bit of loving antagonism. And over time, they developed a particular closeness that no longer just felt like video game pals. Cass and the brothers started calling each other their family of choice. And though they've now met in real life, 
A lot of their family story comes from these little moments of play in virtual worlds. I think when it comes to family of choice as opposed to friends, there's kind of a vulnerability. There's the ability for me to be vulnerable around them. And I know that sounds odd because I've been talking about how much I torture them. But for me, being able to do that, being able to express that side of myself is something that I can't do with just anyone. It's the sort of thing where leaving my comfort zone and being myself, even when it's obnoxious or annoying around them, it's a very vulnerable, personal thing. And I just feel like family is the best way to describe the feeling of safety I have during it. Playing with Jake and Matt, that sense of safety helped Cass try on different ways of being. Right now, it's interesting because as I get older, I'm finding I don't necessarily feel like I'm a cis woman. I feel like I'm somewhere on the non-binary spectrum, but I still have that socialization. And so I think being able to break out of that socialization and being encouraged to break out of that socialization, to be less of a polite, helpful person in that way, um, helped me sort of explore my identity. So having people in my life who encouraged me to be loud, to be chaotic or to sort of not limit myself in that way led to other sort of discoveries and growth on my part. It can be tempting to see the physical and the virtual world as completely separate, to see one as an escape from the other. But Cass is Cass when she's playing and she's still Cass when she turns the game off. In reality, the barrier between the virtual world and the physical world is barely there. Yeah, I think 16-year-old Cass would be very impressed with almost 30-year-old Cass. And I think a lot of that does come down to sort of gaming and the relationships I've formed through it. Okay, back to the sea. Jake and Matt have just gathered a bunch of gold and other treasures, and they're quietly headed back to the island to unload. But Cass, Cass has other plans. So we pull into port, we drop anchor, and in the distance, I see a set of sails. And everyone above the ship is like, don't do it. Cass, don't do it. But it's too late. I have the speaking horn to my lips. (laughs) And I'm going, hello, Mr. Galleon. Hello. So at this point, the Galleon is heading straight for us. And those pirates are going to take our treasure and we fled. We would sneak aboard their ship and drop their anchor, or they would hit us with cannonballs, knocking holes in our hole and forcing us to board it up. We eventually managed to lose them by sailing through fog and navigating through the treacherous rocks of Shipwreck Bay, but it was close. Cass started a completely unnecessary 40-minute chase that almost made them lose everything they had just fought for. In Sea of Thieves, there is a system to deal with naughty crewmates, um, and it is called the Brig system. If someone is doing and acting a certain way, you, you can vote not to boot them from the game, but to forcefully imprison them in the Brig in the middle of the ship. It is a cage that is about two feet by two feet, so there's barely enough room to move. Um, and three of us decided she needs to sit down for a second. <laughs> Um, and 
At the same time we brigged her, I have just been happening to slamming back the liquor. And as I was crawling up on the ship, my character started to profuse vomit, uh, violently. <laughs> so to be clear, yes, his character is drunk and throwing up. What I found myself doing was throwing up in this bucket and then running downstairs and throwing it on Cass while she was in the brig. That was then when he started all chugging down Grog as but, fast as possible <laughs> to join in. To join in. And they could throw up through the bars. So they were able to just spatter me with wave after wave of vomit <laughs> as I yelled at them. And I just yelled back saying, this is what you get. This is the price <laughs> of a hemlo. World 3, a house in England. And now, a shift. This last story is about a guy who builds his own virtual world. Because sometimes, you have to build the one you need. Hello, Russell. My name's Salim. It's great to meet you. Yes, it's great to meet you too. This video game doesn't feel like a place because you can meet people there or go exploring. In fact, it's about as private and small as you can get. It's actually the first time I think that I've ever met someone who I have played in a simulation oh. first. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's uh, a strange experience. Um, how does it compare? I could put on <laughs> um, I could put on the cap actually there's, that I have in the There's a lot more detail in uh, <laughs> the image I'm seeing now. Oh, um hold on um hold on one sec. Yeah. Sure. Part of why this game feels like a place is that it's based on a very real location and a very real story. And that is the story of the worst year of Russell's life. This, after all, is an episode about using video games to experiment with ways of being human. And nothing is more human than grief. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, this was the, uh, the cap that I was wearing on that day. That day was in April of 2017 in Los Angeles. Russell Quinn and his mom, Linda, went on a short hike up to Griffith Park Observatory. They sat on a bench. The sun was shining. They could hear birds. And he told her that if her cancer got worse, he would go back to England to stay with her. I mean, there's no way that we could have expected within a year, like she would have died. My grandmother would have died. The houses would have, I would have been sold. And then I would have had uh, this surgery to uh, remove a lodged kidney stone in my kidney. And when the damage was done, he went right back to LA where it all started. And even though, like Lucy, my wife, um, and my friends were all very like eager to like help me and to talk about it, um, it just felt extremely lonely. Like I, like I didn't have any siblings to process this with. Yeah. I, I mean, even like my daily routine was suddenly like I was expected just to go back to normal, um, and like nothing was the same. His mother and his grandmother, the center of his life for months in this little house in rainy rural England, both of them were gone. The house was sold, new people moved in, walls torn down. And back in his life in sunny LA, the whole traumatic year felt like a different world. So all of these things just felt like so buried and there was nothing to share them with, which is kind of where like the first impetus to make uh, this game came from. Russell had been making interactive stories, not exactly video games, but making a video game felt within reach. He would spend the next three years meticulously rebuilding that terrible year in a game called Linda and Joan, named after his mother and grandmother. 
The prologue, which is based on that walk in LA with his mom, it's out now. It's called Four Months Earlier. The main game is in progress, and almost all of it takes place in that little house. Yeah, this house, um, it's like a three-bedroom house um, on two stories, but the whole thing is 800 square foot. Um, so every room is um, is tiny. Um, I mean, the ceilings are like seven foot, uh, yeah, like seven and a half feet oh, wow. high or something. I mean, I'm six foot one. Like if I lift my arm, I can, um, I can touch the ceiling very easily. I was curious, mm-hmm. you know, going into it, were you scared at all that it would be a dark activity to do? Um, I wasn't at the time, uh, but looking back, like I was still deeply in shock um, at the time. Um, mm. So, yeah, like it just seemed entirely natural. Like my my wife was worried that uh, that this would be unhealthy uh, to linger, uh, to spend so much time with uh, with this material. Um, but almost instantly, I started like three D modeling. Uh, my mother's living room from like photos and memories and it just felt it was like so comforting to be in that place uh, that no longer existed as the creator of a virtual world you get some low-key godlike powers in this version of the worst year of his life russell got to create the rules that controlled it so he developed game mechanics that mimicked his experience of caretaking and grief one rule was that in the game you don't just play as one character you play as all three people Russell, Linda, and Joan, toggling between their perspectives. And you kind of take on the role of the family. So even though these these like sad things are happening to the characters, the role of the family while it exists is to make the most of a bad situation, right? Um, all three of us were trying to take care of each other. Um, I mean, that is what happens in real life, either for like terminal illnesses or uh, yeah, for like sadness and anguish and um, like there's there's like a triangle of care where everyone is worried about each other for different things. I mean, even in the period between my mother's terminal diagnosis and her death, um, life feels like it's on rails, right? Like there's nothing that you can do, like beyond a miracle, like you know what's going to happen, but you still have to live for weeks, for months, um, yeah, for some people for years. I mean, like what do you do in that time? You can be constructive. You can like plan out like actual things, um, but also there's this like emotional care. Like you still, and like, there are still times to like reminisce and be happy. There's still time for caring about each other. There's no explicit right or wrong, but you do have to decide who you want to be in this scenario. Maybe like you decide, like when you realize uh, that Russell will be the only one um, who will carry on living. Maybe. Like you decide to prioritize his mental health near the end. Um, so there are many different ways that you will be able to play it. It's just playing through yeah, this very difficult time when, it, uh, uh, when all three people are feeling terrible, but their main, like their main worries really are about the other two people. Russell wants to create a place for people who have gone through something similar, to give them new words and ways to understand what they've been through. Even if you haven't like directly thought about it, like it's, um, it's things that are, are, are that linger in the back of everyone's minds, right? Like your, like a very healthy parent might just, might like fall over one day, and then like suddenly you're, like you realize for the first time that, uh, yeah, that these types of things are going to happen, 
and yeah. you're going to have to deal with them more and more. In some ways, spending years creating something based on a difficult time, it's it's not that unusual of a thing to do. Writers and artists, they do it all the time. But there is something distinct about video games in that making them and playing them, you're often inhabiting another character. You're virtually walking in their shoes. I 3D modeled myself like fairly early on as a character to walk around in the scenes that I was making, but I like the one thing that I was very hesitant, I was hesitant over was 3D modeling my mother. Um, yeah. What was that like? Yeah, like that felt like the point when it could um, it could go um, like emotionally wrong, right? For the first half of the time developing the game, Russell says he modeled everything except her. The whole game was this richly detailed place, but his mom, she just stayed a floating colored cylinder. There was a part of me that, uh, that worried that once I recreated her, that like I would, like I would see it for like the, uh, like if this was like a ghoulish thing to be doing, then I would see it as that when I put her in the game. And when he did model her, slowly recreating the video game version of how she walked with a stick. It just felt fine. Um, wow. Um, yeah, so I was both like, yeah, but like, like that feels like her, but it didn't emotionally feel like her. Um, it suddenly gave me that distance where like, like when I realized that like the story and the things that happened to me are still a very personal story between my family and I. I mean, it's different from what I am depicting in the game. Like Wes and Cass, Russell now has this low-stakes space where he can experiment with his experience, where he can walk with his mom, who's not really his mom, and see this year from a distance. And soon, this virtual three-story house, it'll be a place where he and others can practice sitting with this pain when they want to. Because at the end of the day, this is a place you can switch off. Far Flung with Salim Rushamwala is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for TED. This episode was produced by Kim Naderfein Peterson, along with Elise Blenner-Hassett, Huete Gitana, Sabrina Farhi, Angela Chang, and Michelle Quint, with the guidance of Roxanne Highlash and Colin Helms. Huge thanks to Lee Yancey. His conversations were invaluable for contextualizing the world of video games and to Raf Koster for his insight into virtual worlds. All that cool, glitchy, video gamey music in this episode was created by musician Phil Cook. Special thanks to our sponsor, Marriott Hotels, and to Women Will, a Grow With Google program. Our fact checkers are Nicole Bodie, Abby White, and Paul Durbin. Ad stories are produced by Transmitter Media. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. I'm Salim Reshamwala. 